want to say hello to everybody. I think I know most of you for those I haven't met. I'm Bob Levy. I'm chairman of Cato's Board of Directors and a fellow Naples resident. Welcome to our 2022 Policy Perspectives Conference, and thanks very much for joining us. So it's been quite a while since we've been able to travel and get together in person. So a special vote of thanks to those of you flying here from out of town. Uh, in the good old days, we only had to uh, endure TSA's uh, security pat-downs, which reportedly uncovered 1,500 hernias and about 3,000 cases of hemorrhoids. Uh, today, of course, travel is even uh, tougher, so it's not just TSA, it's, uh, it's COVID. But there is uh, both good news and bad news on the pandemic front. The good news is that seniors, uh, as you've probably read, seniors can now get their COVID tests free uh, over the internet. The bad news is that most seniors, at least in the retirement community where I live in Naples, try to communicate with their computers by shouting into their mouse. Regret, regrettably, the uh, messaging from CDC is still a bit confusing. So the, the guidance uh, is either to wear uh, an N95 mask or a KN95 mask, or if neither one of those is available, then just wear 95 masks. Um, <laughs> in fact, it, it's not, it, it, it's the N95 rather than the KN95 that uh, that affords the best protection. But again, you have to uh, remember those uh, seniors, again, in my Naples retirement community, if anybody yells N95, uh, one of our residents always hollers bingo. <laughs> Back here in the real world, uh, let me brag just a little bit about Cato's ranking in the global go-to think tank index from the University of Pennsylvania. It's now updated through 2020. <clears throat> Cato is 27th among 11,175 think tanks worldwide and 13th out of 2,203 uh, think tanks in the United States. In specific areas, we are in the top 10 uh, for domestic economic policy, health policy, social policy, best advocacy, and policy-oriented research. And again, I remind you, those numbers out of 11,175 organizations globally, none of which is promoting a libertarian message like, uh, like Cato's. On top of that, Cato has the highest four-star rating from Charity Navigator, which is America's largest uh, evaluator of nonprofits. So we are dedicated to the efficient deployment of donor funds. Uh, advancing libertarian principles with intellectual rigor, uh, nonpartisanship, and uh, independence. And on behalf of our board, uh, I'd like to express our enormous gratitude for your support. Uh, from now until roughly 2 p.m., we're going to hear from Cato's Executive Vice President, David Bowes, our Director of General Economics, Scott Linsicum, uh, Cato's President and CEO, Peter Gettler, and New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. So there's, there's a lot going on, and our speakers are going to cover quite a range of controversial topics. 
when all is said and done, uh, we will know why it is that we need a freedom movement, which not coincidentally is the subject of David Bose's keynote address today. Uh, David is Cato's executive vice president and our longest serving employee ever. More than 40 years of dedicated leadership at the Cato Institute. <clears throat> not only had Not only has David played a, a key role in the development uh, of Cato, but he's, he's been an acknowledged uh, superstar within the libertarian movement. Uh, three of David's books, uh, The Libertarian Mind, The Libertarian Reader, and Libertarianism, A Primer, are manifestos uh, for the pro-freedom agenda. Uh, his breadth of knowledge is quite extraordinary, um, and uh, that ranges from educational choice to drug legalization to, of course, political philosophy. David's articles have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, National Review, and on and on. David also wrote the entry on libertarianism for the Encyclopedia Britannica. He's a frequent radio and TV guest, including appearances on CNN's Crossfire, uh, on NPR's Talk of the Nation, Fox News, BBC, Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, and many other media. All of us uh, at the Cato Institute know that David can spot a typo at 100 yards. Uh, he guarantees that everything we publish is rigorous, principled, and factual. And for me personally, it has been an immense pleasure to work with uh, David over the past 25 years, so please join me in welcoming Cato's Executive Vice President and Intellectual Godfather, uh, David Bose. Thank you, Bob, and it's certainly been a pleasure working with you and with the various CEOs that I have dealt with in my time at Cato. Some people think being in one place for 40 years shows a lack of ambition. Um, I had about five jobs in the few years before that, and I discovered that when you find the right place, you might as well stay there. So I've been thinking about these kinds of issues for a long time, and my assigned topic today is why we need a movement for freedom, or as I sort of title it in my own thinking why we are here and when we say why we are here the answer is first because it's really really cold in Washington colder than it's been in years so being in Naples that's good enough reason to be here instead of there we're also glad to be here because we're just glad to see people again to be with people um, it's been two years since we were able to do one of these, and we're glad to do it again and glad to have so many of you uh, willing to come out and join us. But more importantly, we're here because we love freedom. And a few years ago, one of my colleagues said, you know, people at Cato are always complaining about things, complaining about politics, complaining about the loss of freedom. You don't actually talk much about freedom. What is freedom? So today I want to talk a little about freedom before starting in on my complaints. Freedom is a big idea, been developed by great thinkers over many years, but it's also something 
that people feel in their bones. Every one of us can imagine what it meant to cross through the Berlin Wall from freedom to unfreedom. We can measure freedom in reports like the Human Freedom Index and Freedom in the 50 States. There's a new edition of that just out, and Florida did very well. Not quite as well as New Hampshire, as you'll probably hear later today, but very well. But those measurements don't capture what it means to take freedom from an individual. The individuals know what it means. We know the names of some of the people who felt the loss of their freedom. Nathan Hale, Frederick Douglass, Sophie Scholl, who tried to oppose the Nazis, Rosa Parks, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. But we work for the freedom of people whose names we may not know because we do know the centrality of freedom to our lives. And we should remember that much of our life is free. We make thousands of choices every day, thousands of interactions with other people from our own choice. We are not regulated, we are not controlled, we are not managed in making those choices. Freedom gives meaning to our lives. It allows us to define our own meaning, to define what's important to us. Freedom means respecting the moral autonomy of each person, seeing each person as the owner of his or her own life, each person free to make the important decisions about his own life, to think, to speak, to write, to create, to marry, to eat and drink and smoke, to associate with others as we choose. Freedom is the foundation of our ability to construct our lives as we see fit. And it has good consequences for society, not just for each of us as individuals, but for our society. First, social harmony. We have less conflict when we have fewer specific rules about how we should live, whether that involves religion, dress, lifestyle, class, caste, or schools. When we put those things in the government's portfolio, then we have to fight over who makes those rules. When we leave them to free choice, we don't have to have those fights. And second, particularly, freedom produces economic growth and abundance. In a free economy, people have incentives to invent, innovate, and produce more goods and services for the whole society. And that system, imperfectly followed in the Western world, has taken us from backbreaking labor and short lives to the abundance we see around us. As people like Steven Pinker and Deirdre McCloskey and humanprogress.org are always reminding us. So for a long time, it wasn't that way. What changed the world? What happened about 300 years ago to transform our world from 10,000 years of subsistence living to steady progress. Scholars disagree about a lot of the details, but it certainly includes freedom, the opportunity to use our talents and to cooperate with others to create and produce with the help of a few simple institutions that protect our rights. And the ideas, the institutions, and the innovation are interconnected. One way to look at it is that liberalism came into the world. 
And it's important to remember that we are liberals. We have to say classical liberals now to make it clear what we mean, but it is liberalism that challenged the old order, the order of power and status, of caste and class, and developed a new way of looking at the world, an understanding that you know the words, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. We are the heirs of John Locke, Adam Smith, Mary Wollstonecraft, John Stuart Mill, William Lloyd Garrison, Frederick Douglass, Hayek and Rand, and Friedman, and that's an important heritage. Liberals changed the world. After millennia of backbreaking labor and short lives, many of us may have read in our uh, college classes that the noted scholar Karl Marx recognized how liberals had changed the world. He said the bourgeoisie during its rule of scarce 100 years, because he was writing around 1850, has created more massive and more colossal productive forces than have all preceding generations together. What earlier century had even a presentiment that such productive forces slumbered? Liberals built the modern world of human rights, open markets, and constant progress. And as new challenges to freedom and progress arose, liberals turned to confront them. They fought socialism, fascism, military dictatorship, apartheid, theocracy, and whether those challenges were said to come from right or left, they all sought to replace the rule of law with the rule of some men over others. You know, people rarely think of libertarians as moderates, but as the two parties become more polarized, usually in the wrong ways, Democrats are becoming more tax and transfer, more socialist, not more civil libertarian, Republicans becoming more nationalist and protectionist, not more free market, libertarians may find themselves in a new center of people who are uncomfortable with both those extremes. And around the world, with left-wing autocrats vying with ethnic national autocrats for power, classical liberals defend the broad center of peaceful and productive people in a society of liberty under law. And part of our job is to give those peaceful and productive people a clear philosophy and policy agenda. When I was doing interviews about my book, The Libertarian Mind, a few years ago, I regularly said, libertarianism is the idea that adult individuals have the right and the responsibility to make the important decisions about their own lives. In fact, you may recall a bestseller from some years ago, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And I like to say you learn the fundamentals of libertarianism, the fundamentals of freedom, and the fundamentals of civilization in kindergarten. Don't hit other people, don't take their stuff, and keep your promises. And if we follow rules like that, we have a free and abundant society. But too often, those aren't the rules they live by in Washington. And that's part of why we're here.
Thomas Jefferson said, the natural progress of things is for liberty to yield and government to gain ground. In so many ways in our country, power has tended to flow from the people to government, from state and local governments to the federal government, and from Congress to the executive. I also learned when I was a boy about Smokey the Bear's rules for fire safety. And as I grew up, I realized Smokey's rules for fire safety also apply to government. Keep it small, keep it in a confined area, that's pretty much what Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution does, and keep an eye on it, and that's kind of what we do. So how do we do that? What do we do? Well, I'm not going to just go through a list of books and studies and conferences and TV appearances. There are a lot of those out there on the tables if you want to pick some up. But I want to talk about some of the ways that we try to move the debate, move the dialogue, and ultimately move policy in a better direction. Some things that aren't so obvious. For instance, we give academics a platform to reach a broader audience. A lot of great scholars burrowed away in their, in their offices, in their classrooms, in their academic journals, but not really having a broader reach. And we try to give people a platform. One of the first scholars we worked with like 44 years ago um, was uh, Earl Ravenel, who was a scholar at Georgetown University of Foreign Policy. He was a critic of America's global interventionism, world policing uh, policy. But he's teaching it to his students at Georgetown and writing in academic journals. And when we discovered him, we said, let's get these ideas out. Let's get them into op-ed pieces in the Washington Post and the New York Times. Write a, a, a short book that people around the country could read to understand what we're doing with our foreign policy and the mistakes of it. And I would say one of the key things that Ravenel talked about was where the defense budget actually goes. Is it for defending the United States? Is it for defending the Middle East, Europe, whatever? And one of the things he said was, you know, the second largest item in the federal budget after Social Security is NATO, the defense of Europe. And we ought to debate whether that's a good idea, whether that's a good expenditure of money. And I will say, after we spent four or five years promoting Ravenel's work, people in Washington knew what the cost of NATO was. Now, that didn't cause all of them to agree with Ravenel that that's too much, it's not worth it, but it did mean that they were better educated and they had to defend that idea. A second person around that same time was Richard Epstein, whose name many of you know as a great legal scholar. But at the time we started working with Epstein, he was a scholar who wrote for law journals, and obviously not many people actually read law reviews. Bob Levy may have read a few, but I doubt anybody else in this room has. But Epstein had a book coming out that basically argued that almost everything the federal government does is not authorized in the Constitution. And we grabbed hold of that and we made him a much better known figure. We arranged a lunch to start with and some leading journalists in Washington came to it and then we organized a, a bigger sort of debate lunch and uh, we had him speak at events and 
Really, I think the work he did along with our Center for Constitutional Studies changed the way not just legal scholars but judges looked at the role of the Constitution and the role of judges in protecting liberty. I could go on and on mentioning other people. I'll mention one other person, George Selgin, a scholar of monetary policy at um, the University of Georgia, left the University of Georgia, came to Cato, and a year or two later he's being touted by a top Wall Street Journal reporter for the Federal Reserve. Now, neither president in the past few years wanted somebody as insightful and original and critical as George Selgin on the Federal Reserve, but the fact that Wall Street Journal writers were taking those ideas seriously meant that there's been a change in the way we think about monetary policy. Another point, we have created a platform that automatically makes our new scholars participants in the national debate. People like Emily Eakins and Scott Linscombe, who you're going to hear from in a few minutes, and Jennifer Schulp, bring the expertise they had already developed to Cato, where we have a platform to make sure people find out about it. And aside from our scholars talking in the national media, we get ideas into the national media that weren't there before. We have hundreds of Cato op-eds and quotations in major newspapers every year. On staff, we get an email every day of uh, media mentions, and there are dozens of citations of Cato in the media every day. Literally not a day goes by that Cato scholars aren't reaching broad audiences. And sometimes we get libertarian ideas into the media without getting any credit. Sometimes they may quote George Selgin or they may run an op-ed by Scott Linscombe or whatever. But other times, journalists call us and ask us to walk them through an issue so they'll understand it better when they write about it. Or we offer tips on good stories to journalists we've worked with. I did that this morning. I don't know if it'll work, but I sent a note to a guy who just left the Washington Post for the New York Times and said, you know, you ought to be looking at this... Uh, uh, story of yet another government outrage. We'll see if anything happens. We write op-eds, and maybe the newspaper doesn't choose to publish it, but then we find the ideas showing up in their own editorial, which in a way is better, because then it's not just our opinion, it's the opinion of the newspaper. Reuters, the news service, won a uh, Pulitzer Prize the other day for its series on the problem of qualified immunity, which had begun with a conversation with Cato scholars. That was how the Reuters people educated themselves on the problem and then went out and reported the facts that they could find. Another thing I always like to think about is we give people the courage to do what they know is right. And a couple of classic examples of that from some years ago were Kurt Schmoke, the mayor of Baltimore, and Gary Johnson, the governor of New Mexico, both had been thinking about the fact that the drug war isn't working. But it was after they talked to Cato, they read things from the Cato Institute, that both of them decided to come out and try to start a national debate on whether the drug war is working. And just recently, a couple of senior scholars on the House Judiciary Committee <clears throat> 
had known about the problem of qualified immunity, but they never made it a priority because it seemed too obscure and complicated to tackle without any real intellectual or institutional backing. And when Cato got involved in that issue with Clark Neely joining us a few years ago and spent time with those staffers, they had the resources to need to move and the committee chair emerged as a leading advocate for reform. So those are ways that we didn't necessarily persuade people to be on our side. We found people who were already thinking that way and showed them that they're right and that there would be intellectual backing if they decided to speak up for what they know. And similarly, we put big ideas on the table that wouldn't be there otherwise. The idea that the Constitution establishes uh, enumerated powers You'd think that's pretty obvious, but before Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies and the work of Richard Epstein and Randy Barnett and Roger Pilon, that sort of wasn't understood. People understood that there was a Bill of Rights and the government can't do anything that is prohibited by the Bill of Rights, but they didn't understand that the government can't do anything that it isn't authorized to do delegated, enumerated, and thus limited powers. And so it was a champagne-popping day at the Cato Institute when the Chief Justice of the United States began a Supreme Court decision by saying we start from first principles. The Constitution creates a government of limited powers. That's what we had been trying to persuade them of. The war on drugs I was just talking about. Nobody was talking about the problems with drug prohibition until we managed to raise it to a level that other people would join in and talk about it. Health savings accounts, the idea that it makes more sense for you to be putting your own money into a savings account that you can pay for health care with instead of just having your employer buy you an insurance plan and send you to an HMO gatekeeper. We could have a much simpler less expensive health care system if everybody moved to health savings accounts. Reining in presidential war powers. We've been talking about this for a long time, and it took a long time to get anybody interested. Why should one man be able to take the United States to war? That's not what the founders believed. It's not what they put in the Constitution. And yet, it had been happening. And now, finally, after two very long wars, and after at least a couple of presidents who were pretty unpopular with half the country, we've got members of Congress on both sides of the aisle talking about how do we instantiate, implement what the Constitution says about the role of the Congress in deciding when the United States goes to war. And then Social Security reform, we've been talking about that for a long time, and we haven't really made much progress, but it's, a, it's an indication that when we think something is important, we don't just put out one study. We talk about it. We come back to it. We meet with members of Congress. We talk to the newspapers. We publish books on Social Security. And every year, the insolvency point of Social Security gets closer, but it's very difficult to get politicians to look beyond the next election. That's been a real challenge.
But I think the number one way the Cato Institute helps to change the world is to create a presence for libertarian ideas in Washington and in the national policy debate. We have created a major consistent voice on behalf of individual liberty and limited government in the national media. And in that way, we are renewing the culture of liberty that runs deep in America. Two very distinguished scholars who don't much care for freedom complained a few years ago that libertarian ideas are, quote, astonishingly widespread in American culture. And they're right. A lot of Americans hold basic libertarian ideas that I get to run my life and the government is not empowered to run my life. At meetings and seminars around Washington, in political cartoons, in newspaper columns and books, Cato is often recognized as the focus and voice of that American heritage of liberty. I would go to seminars in Washington and some speaker is up there and he's about to advocate some stupid program. And just because I'm sitting there, he'll say, well, I know the Cato Institute is not going to like this idea. Now, I'd rather he say, I think the Cato Institute is going to like my new idea, but at least it means that people are being reminded that there are a lot of Americans who don't like these big government schemes. Millions and tens of millions of Americans who think government is too much involved in our business lives and our personal lives. And we need to reach more of them, to find them and rally them and push them and keep them out of the clutches of the culture warriors. The both sides of the aisle, culture warriors who seek to demonize and polarize and separate us. I hope you have visited our beautiful building on Massachusetts Avenue in Washington, halfway between Cong Capitol and the White House. But a think tank is not a building. Cato is about ideas, the ideas of peace, liberty, dignity, tolerance, human rights, property rights, open markets, and limited constitutional government. And we do the work we do because we care about the people whose lives are affected by government that exceeds its proper bonds. And we also remember that the difficulties we face in getting our message out are nothing like those our friends in other countries face. Who do I mean? I'm thinking of people like Yang Zili, who was sentenced to eight years in a Chinese jail for reading Hayek and writing about the rule of law and Karima Mir, who was sentenced to four years in an Egyptian jail for blogging about the oppression of women and Christians. One of the things he was accused of was saying that the president of Egypt was a dictator. For that, he got a year in jail, kind of proving the point. And an American businessman I can't name because he is forbidden by an SEC gag order from telling the world how he was treated by the regulatory state. But we don't worry just about those who suffer for the restrictions on their freedom of speech. We speak for all those who suffer under the burdens of government. People like Shelley Parker, who had to go all the way to the Supreme Court to win the right to own a gun to protect herself in a dangerous D.C. neighborhood. Or Suzette Kilo, whose home was taken from her by a nefarious partnership between big business and big government, or Eric Garner choked to death for selling loose cigarettes on the street. 
they remind us of what the founders told us, that eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And in this day and age, when we don't intend to take up arms in defense of freedom, eternal vigilance is exercised by all the Americans who devote their time and money and effort to defending and expanding freedom. Sometimes people wonder if what think tanks do is important. Politics, they say, that's where the action is. You should get out and do things. Politics has its place. But as my friend Joe Lehman, who works at another think tank, said, when lawmakers change public policy to favor liberty, they are only taking the final step in a long march. Watching what lawmakers accomplish in the legislature is like watching a football game through a hole in the fence that only lets you see the goal line. Up the field and further away from the goal, from the goal line glory is where ideas begin their march toward becoming public policy, and those ideas are developed and communicated by think tanks. And that's why we're here. The founders pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to the cause of American freedom. We don't have to do that, but we do have to do what we do because freedom isn't free. It must be defended in every generation. There's never been a golden age of liberty, and there never will be. There will always be people who want to live their lives in peace, and there will always be people who don't want to let them. There will always be a conflict between liberty and power, and that's why we'll always need a movement for freedom. Thank you for being part of that. Now, I believe I've left just a couple of minutes for questions, and if there are any questions, raise your hand and somebody will bring you a microphone. And if there are not any questions, there will be more time for questions for Scott Linscombe. Thank you very much for an excellent presentation. Could you explain, go back to the basics, uh, who was Cato and where did the name of your institute come from? Yeah, that's kind of a complicated story. Um, in the 18th century, it was very popular to sign political articles with names from Greek and Roman history. You may remember from college, the Federalist Papers, although they were written mostly by Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, they were signed anonymously as Publius. And in 18th century England, there were two writers, John Trenchard and Thomas Gordon, who signed their name, their essays, Cato. And they were admirers of Cato the Younger, the last Republican who stood against the tyranny of Julius Caesar. They believed they were standing against what they saw as an incipient tyranny in England. Um, and what they were doing was taking the great ideas of people like John Locke and Algernon Sidney, who was a very big liberal at the time, and applying them to political issues, policy issues, and so the founders of Cato Institute believed that what we were going to do was apply the great ideas of scholars like John Locke and Friedrich Hayek to policy and political issues, and that's why we're named Cato. It's a little complicated. I would like to ask you what the uh, 
strategy is for Cato to deal with the enormous group of voters, the young people, the millennials, who are, do not embrace all of the things that you just mentioned today. How is your, what is your strategy to reach that group of people? Well, first, I have to point out to us older people that millennials are no longer young people. Millennials are middle-aged people. Now we're trying to reach, I guess, Generation Z. Um, it's an interesting question about today's young people. They clearly, in so many ways, have more freedom, more freedoms available to them than any people in the history of the world. They have so many careers available to them. They are carrying all the knowledge in the history of the world right here in their pocket. Um, they want to make their choices about everything from how to work to where to work. Any of you who are employers right now are noticing people are getting very strong opinions about where they should work. They believe that every person should be free to decide who to marry, what to smoke, all those things, and yet somehow they do believe that the government could supply us with a lot of benefits and ought to do more of that. So first we want to try to get them to see the contradiction. As I think a colleague of mine was saying just yesterday, you're young people, you're supposed to be rebelling against the man. So it doesn't make any sense for you to say let's give the man a lot more power. Um, so we want, to, we want to get that across to them. We also want them to understand what it is that gave them a world of pelotons and smartphones and the internet and all of that. And that is the liberal capitalist system. Um, and we have to tie that to the social tolerance and social liberalism that they believe in so deeply. That people of every race and every gender and every sexual orientation should be treated decently and treated equally. And I want to tell them that's liberalism. That's our kind of liberalism. So as a practical matter, we bring about 100 students a year to Washington to be interns. Uh, we bring another hundred or so to seminars. Uh, we have, I mean, obviously our website is available to young people, but our website, libertarianism.org, is particularly targeted to uh, young people. And so we're trying to reach people through the ways that they're working. And I often say, you know, to people at libertarianism.org, that, that video is too short. You can't learn anything. And they tell me young people want short videos. Um, so, so hopefully the younger people at Cato are better able than I am to know how you reach people who are learning everything they learn on a smartphone and that sort of thing. But it is something that is uppermost in our minds and we are working on. And thank you all very much. You're going to hear lots more interesting things here today. Thank you.